This is not just about teaching lessons, but it's life lessons. We're invited to someone's house last night, and Mr. Payton says, hey, just bring a ping-pong paddle. I'm thinking, sure, I'll bring a ping-pong paddle. And there's a few players here. I know John can play, and Govinda can play, and Jason Spear thinks he can play. <laughs> and there's a few others, and James says, why don't you go change the T-shirt if you'll play ping-pong? He says, nah, I don't think I'm going to break a sweat. I wasn't being offensive when I said that. The boy went downstairs and Peyton started beating up on me. Next thing you know, I'm fighting for my life. I said, Lord, forgive me for such presumption. And so other guys are mourning you, John. You guys can, you got a player in, in Peyton. So that was my lesson in not making assumptions too quickly. And uh, I'll be, next time I wear the T-shirt, I'll walk away with it. Sweaty dress shirt. Yes, Jerry. Go ahead. I haven't. Well, okay. So we're trying to figure out a better scenario for the banquet. A couple things about having a Valentine's banquet. Uh, one, it seems to overlap with some people who already have Valentine traditions. So they can't really afford either financially or the time babysitting to try to do a Sunday school class Valentine's and their own traditional Valentine's. Uh, so that was that was one one thing. The other thing was um, just making sure that we have activities that everyone was comfortable coming to. Obviously, Valentine has you know lovey-dovey heart stuff associated with it, and not everybody's married. So uh, kind of making way for some of that and not making something that maybe as exclusive, maybe having a banquet, but not necessarily entirely geared in that direction. So we're pushing that back a little bit. Plus, when you try and do some things around Valentine, like everybody else, finding the banquet hall and everything else gets gets a little more problematic. So we do want to have a banquet together, dinner together, but we're going to push it back and do it at a little different time. Yes? St. Patrick's Day, we could celebrate. Yeah, yeah. All right. Anybody else, anybody else want to comment on that? Because I've got no spiritual, I only have carnal thoughts right now. So if somebody else wants to comment, you're more than welcome to, to do so. All right. I mean, just Bastille Day, too. I mean, there's other days we'd be celebrating, too, you know. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If you, if you turn in your Bibles there, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll read the first. We'll read... Verse 10, and then walk through some of our. Reminded of what um, Nathan said last week, just uh, as, he's, as he's preparing for this, like so many things uh, going through his mind, and so many things he learned, just walking through it, and then you, you want to kind of just share them. And which, the danger is just sharing it shotgun style, right? You just want to, all this stuff bubbled up, and you just want to shoot it out and, and, and share everything you've learned. And walking through this, and, and just been encouraged by. <coughs> Paul's, Paul's admonition here, finishing up his thoughts on the reconciliation. Nathan completed that in the chapter, in the chapter 5 uh, last week. And he actually finishes, there's a continuation of that in the first two verses here of, of chapter 6. So let's, let's do the first thing here. Let's go ahead and, and read. Let's go ahead and read the first uh, 10 verses, Second Corinthians chapter 6. He says, Working together with him then... 
Well, hold on. Maybe I wonder. I don't have that verse with me. That's a problem. I usually print all my verses. I don't usually need to open up the Bible for this. But so in we end the chapter five, and he says in chapter in verse twenty twenty one, he says, "Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God." Then he kicks in verse. One, he says, and working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, and then he's quoting Isaiah 49 here, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, and this we're familiar with this exhortation here. Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. He gives now a, a list of some of these trials, and he'll outline them in three different categories. And you'll see by his breaking down in English by saying by, by great endurance, by purity, by truthfulness. He'll, he'll categorize those in three different ways, and we'll look at that near the end this morning. So he says in verse 4, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions and hardships and calamities and beatings and imprisonments and riots, labors, sleepless nights. There you go, Caleb, so you could relate to some of this. Hunger. Verse 6, By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> genuine love. Verse 7, By truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making, not just, not, not just being rich, right, but making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing, yet possessing everything. So in our in our in our context of of a Second Corinthians here, we have we have basically our, our three sections, and we're we're coming near the end of this first section, first seven chapters, the exhortation, the defense of his ministry, um, the nature of his ministry, uh, the purpose of his ministry, laid out through these chapters here. Of course, to be an ambassador as in the previous chapter, the ministry of reconciliation, exhorting them in this, and then we're going to have a a. He talks about the Jerusalem offering in chapters 8 and 9 and the grace of giving. If there's one pivotal text in Scripture that talks about giving in a very unique way, it's chapters 8 and 9. And describes it right in the beginning of chapter 8 of the grace of giving. And then chapters 10 through 13, he's going to address the super apostles that are in the church and then be rebuking those that are in that category that reject him, that consider themselves these above him and or above the apostleship and being super apostles. And he'll address that in the last three three chapters. I find it interesting some commentators talk about how Paul is his letter it like evolves in that letter. He does not it's not really that Paul is evolving. He, really the context is like any church. In any church you have a variety of people that are in different places spiritually, so he's addressing them in different ways uh, throughout throughout this letter. But the first few verses, chapter six he is wrapping up his teaching on the nature of reconciliation. His primary focus in chapter 5 was a desire to persuade others. We saw that in verse 11, chapter 5. New creations, verse 17, again, chapter 5. Not only have we been, through Christ, reconciled to God, but he now gives us the ministry of 
reconciliation. We just read the verses that complete that, that, previous, that previous chapter. But in chapter 6 that we just read, we looked at, he's basically, he's completing his thoughts on reconciliation by shifting his attention towards the Corinthians. Let me get this other verse here. By shifting his attention towards the Corinthians and the need to be reconciled one with another. How does he start that first phrase? He says, well, working together with him. In other words, he's going he's to link the, the notion of being reconciled with God, being ambassadors of, of God, for God, and how that links with, you know, we, we should be in that reconciled one with, one with another. And he draws a very strong correlation between those two things here in the first couple of verses. The apostle who's been reconciled with God is now pleading with the Corinthians to what? To work together with him. You would think it's a given. You think if we're all reconciled with God, we're all going to be reconciled with each other. That is obviously not the case because he's having these struggles with the church and he's going to be addressing that. So what I put down here first of all is the first key point. You know, you, you write these things down and you wish you could kind of say them and just pause and think about them. You know, you walk through, you keep talking about them, keep thinking about them. I wish it's like, let's just, let's just think about what that means for a minute. So first key point, reconciliation with God is a necessary prerequisite and precursor to being reconciled one with another. The Corinthians' alienation from Paul speaks to the relationship to the gospel. And more specifically, to the fact that they are out of step with the gospel. Now that's, think of what that means for my, for my own life. Because now that he's, he's established, and beautiful chapter 5, right? Establishing uh, the work of Christ on our behalf. We've been reconciled with God. Okay, well that means what? Well now let's work together. I mean, we've been, we've been reconciled with God, and that, that, that translates into the gospel and that allows us to now work, work together for the gospel. And when we're not reconciled with each other, we're out of step with the gospel. Turner, I put his quote here, he says, Those who receive reconciliation have already received a taste, a token, a guarantee of God's future work in their lives and in the universe as a whole. They also individually begin to model the kind of peaceful relationships in every area of life which God has ordained for the eschaton, which means for the end, for the end times, right? Paul's strained relationship with the Corinthians. Jane didn't check my spelling. I'm thinking I've seen the spelling here. Wit with the Corinthians is a serious aberration from this ideal. Strong words, right? But again, that needs to be impactful. Paul's strained relationship with the Corinthians is a serious aberration from this ideal and he desperately desires to resolve this hostility so his appeal to them in bringing reconciliation with the church is on the basis of what on the basis of his reconciliation our reconciliation with christ in the gospel that that brings reconciliation one with another and when that isn't there there's a problem and that problem does impact our relationship with and our understanding with the gospel itself 1 John 4, 19 and 21, I'll, I'll just read those verses here. He says what? We love because he what? He first loved us. Our ability to love is because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or a sister is a liar. 
kind of smacks in the face, right? You know, we like to we like to soften things. He doesn't soften the blow here. He doesn't soften the edge, right? He doesn't smooth out that edge. He's just very very straightforward, John. And John is a lover, passionate about truth. He says, "Hey, you can't say love is from God. You can't say that you love God and hate a brother or sister. You're in doing so, you're a liar. You're living in in this contradiction." Whoever does not love their brother and sister, and he's going to make an even stronger correlation here, a stronger application in this verse. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. I mean, the obvious thing is don't claim to love the God that you can't see if you can't express that love and experience that love with your brother and sister that you can see that is sitting right next to you. Of course, who could understand it's easier to love somebody that's a little bit unseen, right? It's the fact that they sit next to you that makes it hard to love sometimes, right? <laughs> Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So Paul's going a step further in his, in his key point that he's making here as he's wrapping up the thought on reconciliation. Then we'll see the evidence of it here in the second part of the verse. Paul is going as far as to suggest that some of the Corinthians are still not reconciled to Paul reflects not only a dysfunction in their relationship with God, but in fact might even indicate that they do not have a relationship with God at all. Ouch. That's offensive. But it's interesting because when he goes through this, we'll see those three categories of people that he's, he's speaking to throughout the letter. And at the end of his letter, as a matter of fact, he's going to end with why. You need to examine yourself to see if you are in a faith. So he's addressing those who... Obviously, still struggle, but he's making the correlation. You can't, you can't struggle with your love for me. As a matter of fact, in our, even in our text today, what does he say in the, in the verses, um, verse twelve, in this end of this paragraph? He says there is a problem with the fact that these men and women who claim to know and love the Lord seem unable to love each other and love Him. We see that in Paul's lament, in verse twelve. He says we're not withholding our affection for you, but you're withholding your affections to us. And he appeals to them that there's a problem here, and he appeals to them to be reconciled with that. So, wow, when you take that at face value, that can certainly stir up a lot of questions in my own mind, and it should, it should challenge us. You're trying to challenge them in their thoughts, right? It's not just about Paul and the Corinthians church. It's me and any relationship that... I am not able to reconcile, and why I'm not able to reconcile that relationship. Now, we can we can we can we can debate the question as to whether or not reconciliation means that we reestablish a broken relationship when it's not possible. There are times where that's not possible. But he's talking about bro- amongst brothers and sisters here, amongst believers, pointing to the fact that the re- reconciliation we have with Christ should manifest itself in the fact that we are reconciled one with another. And he, he does not allow, and John does not allow that even in First John, he does not allow the idea that somehow, and I've heard this say it, said numerous times by believers, they don't, they don't see a problem with not liking someone or even hating someone over here and saying in the same hand, but I love God. <clears throat> believers don't have a problem saying, hey, I, I know what you're saying over here, and I love God, but... They don't have that problem saying that, and Paul says you can't say that. You, you can't reconcile those two things. You're reconciled with God, then it behooves you. We should be reconciled one with another, what, for the sake of the gospel, so that we can work together with him to be ambassadors for Christ. There's nothing that, 
That's why God, one thing the Lord says about the church, right? He hates, he hates a divisive brother. There's nothing more grieving. You know, we, we as a church can fight for truth. We as a church can, can stand for sound theology, sound scripture, and everything else. But you know what really, what really is burdensome in the ministry? Is when believers take offense and divide and split. And it's, it's rarely, if ever, really over purely theological issues. It's, it's over pride. It's over harshness. It's over unforgiveness. It's over offenses. You know, they didn't say hi to me. I know they saw me. I know I walked by. I knew they saw me. They looked the other way, intentionally walked away from me. And they, I mean, I hear those conversations all the time. And there's not this sense of, do you understand that you're, you're touching at the heart of the gospel when you're saying that you can't reconcile with your brother when, when Christ has laid the foundation to be reconciled with him and with the Father. So that's, that's just a key, a key point that he, he brings out here. Um, he appeals, and with, with this in mind, he appeals to them in this first verse still. He says, so with, with this in mind, we appeal to you, what? Not to receive the grace of God in vain. He's, he's appealing to them, allowing the grace of God to make a difference in, in their lives. So, I think I put, well, I'll just read that, you can read that quote here. Message is one that should resonate with every believer. I put down that God has reconciled himself to you. Now God summons you to let God's grace have a positive impact on you by reconciling to those who've hurt you. Make the most of the grace God has shown you by being gracious to those who have made themselves your, your enemy. Key word here is a word vain that is being used here. Do not let the receive, rather, the grace of God in, in vain. The word vain is, is the word empty, uh, vessels which contain nothing. i got a few verses here. We're going to go, if you turn, turn to 1 Corinthians 15, because he, he uses that three or four times in, these, in this passage, what it means to... Uh, to receive the gospel and not be in vain. So the idea of being not receiving the grace of God in vain is not to not receive it, uh, not let it be empty, without effect, uh, without impact. So the idea of empty vessel with no purpose, uh, accomplishing nothing. So the idea when you receive the grace of God, notice you know you're not choosing the grace, you're receiving the grace of God. It's been it's been graced to you. It's been given to you. And don't, don't, don't receive it in vain. Don't let it be empty. Don't let it be of none effect. Uh, Mark, uh, Mark 12, I just gave one example of the, how the word is used in, in Mark chapter 12. He says, you know, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. It's the idea of being empty-handed. So look at 1 Corinthians 15. So I didn't I ain't bring my Bible, so I grabbed one out of the... It took me a long time in that library to find one that was in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. So I finally found one that was in English. But then it was in, then it was in NIV. So that's not really what I wanted because it might throw me off a little bit. And I couldn't take my, my wife's Bible because she got the King James, and I, I haven't practiced my these and thous in a long time. All that to say, this might, the, the reading here might be a little bit different. But look at 15, verse, verse 3. It says, For what I've, what I've received... I passed on to you as a first as a first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture and that 
he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers of the same. Now, again, he laid the same foundation that he laid in chapter 5 of our, of our letter, right? Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep or passed on. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and at last appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So he's describing the, the, the coming of the gospel, the witness of it. Verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecute the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not vain, or was not without effect. So maybe this, NIV translate without effect, but it's a word, same word that we see in the Second Corinthians passage. Without vain, without effect. What is Paul appealing to? Paul appealing to the believer says, you've been reconciled to God. Let that grace not be of none effect in your life. In what regard? Well, in, in our ability to work one with another. In our ability to reconcile our differences so that we can, for the common purpose of being ambassadors of Christ, be proclaimers of the gospel. Uh, verse, verse 14, a bit further in our passage, right? He says, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is what? Is vain or is useless. And so is your faith. Again, the word vain being used here, I've translated useless here in NIV. But in other words, the, the proclamation of truth, the, the, the gospel is, is not, the preaching of it is not useless or vain, nor is our faith. And then a little bit further in verse 55, the end of this chapter, so 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, look how he says it here. Starts out by saying, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us, what, victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, okay, knowing this, knowing we've been reconciled, knowing all this to be true, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves full to the work of the Lord because you know that, what, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So, his admonition, as we see even in 1 Corinthians 15, is what? Is that the, the gospel being reconciled to God, his appeal to the believers is what? That I appeal to you that you don't receive this grace in vain. That it might not be empty. That it might not be without consequence. That it not, might not be without change and evidence in, in, in their life. The evidence of, of Paul's ministry the evidence that it is not in vain is demonstrated in this, in this chapter here, the beauty of it. Paul's preaching is not in vain because Christ rose from the dead. And the resurrection and the work of the Lord that we saw in chapter 5, the work of the Lord on the cross on our behalf, means that his work in our lives is not in vain. The gospel is not in vain. It's not empty. And so knowing that, let's work together for, for the cause of Christ. Well, I did put James there. Just talking about the um, James 2, verse 18. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is vain? Faith apart from works is vain. So he's saying, you know, if you've got, if you've got saving faith and there's no works, then that work, that, that faith is what? Is empty, is vain, is, is pointless. That's the appeal that Paul is having with, with this. So again, going back to... To uh, put here, let's not forget the audience of, of the Corinthian church. 
he, he addresses three different groups here. One, in chapter 7, a little bit later, next chapter, he's speaking to those who experience godly grief. In chapter 10, he's, he's talking to those who distance themselves from Paul, who distance themselves from the gospel. At the end of the letter, he's going, to talk, he's going to tell everyone to examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, unless you're a faith, unless you fail to meet the test. So he, as he walks through the letter, he's exhorting some who are genuine believers to, to take this to heart, and to, that means we should reconcile one with another. But he's challenging others that if, you're, if your faith is vain, if your faith is empty, and if your faith is not transformative, then you need to examine yourself. I mean, are you in the faith? Because a faith that doesn't produce works, what, I mean, if a faith cannot reconcile brothers and sisters in Christ, is that a saving faith? What kind of faith is that? It's a faith that you and I lean on and depend on for our salvation, for our eternal soul. It's not capable of reconciling differences between two brothers and two sisters. Then what kind of faith are we, are we leaning on and are we depending on? That's, that's his appeal. And with that appeal comes a, a warning. Paul warns in that, right? Warns of an empty response. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. Key, key word of the idea, the, the key word here of being vain, and then the key warning that comes with it. And just a couple, a couple quotes from different authors I thought were helpful in this. One, this receiving in vain is the idea of a foolish response that fails to lead to an intended result, which means my, a response that doesn't lead to the needed and intended results. Don't, don't respond to the gospel and to the grace of God in a way that doesn't produce the intended result. The intended result of the gospel is that our lives be reconciled with God and with one another for the sake of the, of the gospel. Another common commentator says this, Grammatically, the response seems to point to a timeless sense of the response they had in the past, continue to have, and will have in the future. In other words, you say this is, this is an ongoing, continual relationship, reconciliation in a relationship with other believers. It's not, once, it's not being reconciled to God once in the past. It's an ongoing reconciliation with those of us who serve together for the sake of the gospel. Guthrie, uh, in, his, in his comment on this passage, says, The point being made is that someone may appear to be standing along others in the community of faith, but only ongoing response and fruit give indication of where the person stands in relationship with God. So with that comes a, a key appeal. In verse 2, second after he quotes Isaiah 49, I'm not going to get into specifics of that this morning, but twice in the second part of verse 2, he says what? Behold, behold. Behold is, we don't use that term, you know, if, if you try and get your class attention in school, behold, behold. I don't think you get their attention, but back in the day, that's what you said to get their attention. You can try that. You know, and next Sunday morning, I'm going to try that for Sunday school. Get everybody's attention when it's time to start. You'll hear me say, behold, and I'll see if that has some more gravitas than, than hey, let's sit down. And, and so with this, and I find it interesting because we, we use this verse, and we understand this verse, and we use it a lot. And, and I think rightfully so. Now is a favorable time. Behold, now is a day uh, of salvation. So he has this, with this key word of uh, being vain, not receiving the grace of God in vain, with the key warning that comes with it. Now there's this appeal and he has this um, drawing their attention. Behold, now is the acceptable time, and now is the time of salvation. <clears throat> so he finishes his discourse and reconciliation with the call to what? To pay attention and listen to what he is about to say. 
when he says that twice, he's like, hey, li- listen to me. You know, hey, this is important. Pay attention to this. You know, he's reading. That's his way of, of making a dramatic pause to gain attention of his audience in the letter. And so there's two aspects of this appeal that he gives in, in verse 2, the second power of verse 2. One, salvation is now. Death and resurrection of Christ ushered in a new covenant. We saw that in chapter 3. We talked about this new covenant in Christ. This, this, this salvation, this new covenant ushered in or inaugurated by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So that's on one hand, there's salvation is now in Christ, and he walked through that for us. And now, the second aspect of this appeal is that this also ushered in a, this opportunity, I should say, demands a response. Now. I like. I think I put it here, literally translated. Now in the present, it's like saying now, now, and like like really now, like now, like right now, you know. And so he, he, he does two things. I mean, he he makes this dramatic pause to gain everybody's attention. Say, hey, pay attention to what I've got to say. Here. Behold, behold. And he says now, in, and then he says now, now in the present. I think it's redundant, but he's making the point that it is now. Not only is salvation is now in Christ. But that salvation, also that opportunity, presents or demands a response. Paul's appeal to the Corinthians to fully embrace this salvation right now. How do you fully embrace the grace of God? By not offering an empty response. You embrace the grace of God by not offering an empty response. Now, he's dealing with people here clearly who are unbelievers. So for them, he's calling upon them to be reconciled with God, and he's also calling a believer. Hey, your response to this grace is to be reconciled one to another for the cause and purpose of the gospel. And then he walks through key evidences, in, and it's, it's, it's a, someone's called this a, a catalog of hardships that he describes. For me, I, I think still in his train of thought here, He's, he's pouring into evidences of the gospel being reconciled with God and how that manifests itself in, in, in his own work. So the shift is not so much necessarily shifting from talking about, hey, uh, today is the day of salvation. Uh, he said we put no obstacles, verse 3, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And then he describes the three different areas here that he that he does this basically describing reconciliation with god is is costly what does reconciliation with god look like what what does it look like not to receive this grace of god in vain what does it look like to live out the gospel and he he gives a description of what it what it means in his own life and his own ministry first the first areas i broke them down this way I've seen him bro- broken down in, in different categories. I'm, I'm just trying to do it in a way that makes sense to me that I, can, I could kind of share. First is there's four general circumstances. He describes them by talking about the first one important, said that in great endurance, in great afflictions, in crisis, and in stressful situations. So he's talking about four general circumstances. The first one is, is key for this one purpose is in a great deal of endurance. The key ingredient that enables us to Endure hardships is the ability to have this endurance and this long, long suffering. Steadfastness 
is the characteristic of a man who has not swerved from his deliberate purpose. His loyalty to faith, even in the greatest of trials and sufferings, it implies patience, it implies waiting for. So the first thing he talks about in giving this, this catalog of hardships is the first one that we need to embrace is this notion of enduring it, the ability to endure, being reconciled to Christ, receiving his grace, embracing that is the ability to endure hardships, being patient in long-suffering. I wrote down a few verses for that. Romans 5 says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 1, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and the afflictions that you're enduring. Hebrews 12, 1, Let us run with endurance. So let me ask you, how do you grow in endurance? In the context that we're describing here, you know, how, how do we understand the, the notion of embracing the grace of God and with that the ability to, the ability to endure trials? Because everything else you don't list afterwards, the beatings, put in jail, the mobs, hard work, sleepless nights, times of hunger, all that falls under the ability to endure that and patiently endure that. How do we grow in our ability to endure something? And I'm always thinking with that, it's going to be, well, how do we teach our kids to endure things as well? So how do, how do we grow in our ability to, to endure things? Gaining our knowledge of God's sovereignty. A grasp of knowledge of God's, God's sovereignty. You hear that? You know, the idea that I like Brian said this in one of the sermons, you know, God discovers nothing. I like that. He discovers nothing. There's no newness to him. He's not waiting to discover something to make a decision. He's not waiting to see what you do to make a decision. And he even doesn't know what you're going to do and make a decision based on what he thinks he knows what you're going to do. I mean, no, God just knows and does. So grasp of God's, God's sovereignty. What else? Yeah. So endurance comes that notion of just enduring it patiently. So it's a race. It's not, you know, a five-minute exercise. It's it's making it last for the duration of the time. How do you walk and and do so by daily walking in the Word, growing in your understanding of the grace that you've received. You know, when you walk into enduring trials. One thing that makes them hard is that we have this notion of unfairness, injustice, the why me's, the, you know, oh, I've already had, you know, the washer broke down, the car broke down, you know, all oh, the third, like, man, like the trifecta, you know, I've won, I've, I've won the lottery here. It's all the undercurrent of that is somehow a sense that I'm entitled to something different. I'm entitled to something normal. Why does my child stay up and cry through the night? You need it for your sanctification, brother. I mean, that's just what it is. I made, I'm going to say you made one mistake in my life. I've made many, but this is one that pertains to this particular question. I told, so Mary Mackey was working at the school, and so she's super efficient and organized and everything, and 
first child was a crier. Then she's expected to get, said, don't worry, Mary. You never get two criers in a row. <laughs> she came back to me later, remember what you said? <laughs> nope. I said, I'm sorry, I can't relate. But, um, <laughs> so Jeff, I wanted to just say, that, that being out of step with the gospel is probably the best principle I have heard this year so far. <clears throat> Because it's just so pervasive and all our, you know, our inabilities or unwillingness to reconcile with one another is always being out of step with the gospel. I mean, it's, in fact, I was thinking that because the gospel is undergirded by, it's always filled with the power of Christ, which is his love. And so the love for one another is the will, helps us have the willingness to reconcile rather than just be right about something. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, that is the greatest principle of amazing. Yeah, when I read that and just walking through that, and I guess the, the picture of that, the, just a, the picture of being out of step, yep. I, I can visualize that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that. Enduring. Why do we buckle so quickly? Why do we give in so quickly? Why do we get frustrated so quickly? The grace of God... The more I'm aware and I embrace the grace of God in my life, the more I can endure because I deserve nothing. I'm entitled to nothing. Whatever I have is but, but by His grace. Whatever I am is but by the grace of God. And, and what a beautiful thing. Let me just say this about, about children, and this is just a, a side note for those raising children even younger and a little bit older how do you how do you raise your children to endure suffering a lot of parents want to pull their kids out of any situation that's conflictual and that's difficult they don't like any hardships for their kids they don't want them to be frustrated with the teacher they don't want them to be frustrated with the friend the first solution is move him away from that person so he's not had to deal with him move him to a different class who so doesn't have to deal with that teacher move him to a different we, we teach our kids to run. We don't teach them to deal with the rub and the difficulty. We don't teach them to reconcile. People run from one church to another as soon as there's a disagreement. It's easier to run. And we don't teach endurance. We don't teach patiently under that grind and, and enduring it. Don't, don't satisfy your children. I told one of my children when they were young, right? I says, we're not going to walk into the store and have, I see it, I like it, I want it. The see it, I like it, I want it, no. And of course, they learn with time. Oh, I've been, I've been thinking about this for a long time. <laughs> it's amazing how many things I've been wanting for a long time. So they, they learn, they, they learn, but... Don't satisfy that instant gratification that doesn't teach them patiently wait on it, wait for it, work for it, endure, as opposed to just satisfying the instant, instant gratification piece. We don't, we don't teach our children enough to, what it means to, to endure. I, I was telling a family just last week, you know, there some some issue there. I, I, just, I remember my daughter. She turned in and worked at the teacher. The teacher looked at it and said, poubelle, and threw it in the trash can. Poubelle means trash. 
That's French schooling. That's, they don't believe, they believe in tough love. <laughs> don't say nothing, Kevin. So, well, they're tough in the classroom, anyway. <laughs> I says, you know, what was my response from my daughter? One, did you do your best in that work, or did you worry up to speed? Well, knowing this daughter, she scribbled fast to get it in done and be done with it. I says, two, I says, go back, do the work well. And, and, and it wasn't just a matter of she doing the work well, but the issue is not, yeah, she wasn't fair, she wasn't nice, does she love you? It's, it's endure it, go back, and deal with it. And the hands how we deal with it. She was a young girl. Teach, teach her children that. And live and experience that for yourself. Don't run from hardships. Embrace them. Let the grace of God not walk away in vain in your life. Let it transform how you think and how you relate to others. And, and you'll, you'll pass that heritage on to your, your children as well. He walks in, and we'll look at some of these next week. Eight manners and means of ministry. Talk about the manner, how things are done. <laughs> Purity, knowledge, patience, kindness. The means of it to the Spirit. And I've got a few comments I want to make about that. And then nine contrast, he ends with this as well. So I'll, I'm not going to rush through that. We'll, we'll pick that up next week as well. Father, I, I can't say enough how I'm grateful for the grace of God that's been bestowed upon me. It's not a grace that I pursued. It's not because of my own wisdom I saw the merits of it. It's a grace given. And Lord, I, I pray that in my own life and the lives of everyone here, Lord, that that grace may not return empty, but have the desired impact to not just embrace our reconciliation with our Creator, but embrace our reconciliation one with another. And in doing so, Lord, manifest the, the beauty of the grace of the gospel. Lord. So I just thank you, Lord, for... For Paul's admonition to this Corinthian church, for his his willingness to to walk through this with them, and to instead of running from this church, who gave him a hard time, to go there and, and embrace it and teach them, help us, Lord, to, to to learn from from this as well. We commit this to you, Lord, in the name of pray. Amen.